0: I'm letting you into a secret. I have a very exciting free mini course coming for you. Reset your health in 30 days, which will enable you to unlock the power to reduce stress, improve your physical, mental, and emotional well-being, and take charge of your health. Sign up now via my website, www.sarahannmacklin.com. Today's episode is not one just for women. Too many times, the onus of not being able to fall pregnant falls on women. But sadly, the research is now showing that infertility is rising in men.
1: are storing a lot of tension there if if you are someone who hasn't necessarily processed their emotions and that's a whole lot of us by the way (laughs) there may be so much of that trapped in our reproductive organs you can actually express that and release that through the process of masturbation yes you don't need an orgasm to conceive but it helps does it yes it does because an orgasm will also mean that you're releasing more oxytocin which is the love hormone A recent study
0: in over 50 countries from 43,000 participants found that sadly in the last 40 years sperm counts have more than halved in Western countries such as the UK, the USA and Australia. Alongside this, recent headlines of Jennifer Aniston talking about her struggles with IVF and getting pregnant and that she hoped she had the information when she was younger to maybe look at egg freezing as a possibility. Both of these topics and many more are really impacting our mental health, shame and stigma and anxiety around the topic of infertility. So today I have one of the leading experts in this area. Dr. Larissa Corder is an obstetrician and gynecologist and is one of the UK's leading fertility experts. We really delve deep, way more than you might think in this episode. And it's very interesting for me as a woman in her 30s, who was surrounded by these conversations a lot in my peer groups, on just how multifactorial infertility is. Because I bet that you didn't know that orgasms can actually increase your rates of conceiving. So it all starts with self-love and lovemaking. And on that topic, I'm not going to divulge any more. You are in for one of a hell of an episode. It's a longer than usual, but one that deserves a truly good listen. Enjoy, Dr. Larissa. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to meet you. It's really, really nice to be here in my home. Thank you so much for coming over. I'm so excited to have you on the show
1: today because
0: infertility, fertility, sexual health, all of this is such a big topic, I think, at the moment, and it's in the headlines a lot. Personally, with a woman who is in her 30s, this is also quite personal to me as well. So I'm really excited to talk through so many different topics and I think many people listening today might think, it's gonna be just around women and infertility, which is the big point I want to make is it's not, because it's not always just the onus is not on women. So we're gonna actually start off by talking around men's health and men's infertility, and then we're gonna come on to that. And I also really wanna to touch upon egg freezing, that's made a lot of headlines recently with Jennifer Anderson, and then conception and fertility in women, and then surrounding the mental health side of all of this, because that's something that I'm also very passionate about, ...in general and something that's maybe not spoken about because there's a lot of shame around all of these topics. So let's talk about men first because yeah. there was a recent study that came out and I know you've spoken about this actually. Over the last 40 years, the sperm count within the study halved within Western countries such as Canada, the USA, the UK and Australia... And sperm here declined the sharpest. And that was an analysis of over 50 countries. So it's one thing that we might not think about when we're thinking about if people are struggling with conception. We don't always tend to look at the man. We tend to already put it straight on the woman. Why do you think, first of all, we don't take men's infertility into consideration? And secondly, why is it on the rise as much as this?
1: Yeah, two really big questions. So the first part of your question, why we tend to focus on women, I think is to do with our culture as well, a huge part of that, that women generally tend to be a lot more proactive when it comes to sort of considering their health from a younger age and you know we go through periods so girls when they're younger may suffer with issues relating to their periods and quite often actually what can happen is they may raise a concern they may feel like going to see their GP they may talk to someone but often they'll get dismissed over that and they're left wondering well is there something wrong with me is there something going on what should I be doing about it? But there's this natural sort of inquisitiveness about all of that and doing some research behind it, finding out whether it's chatting with your friends or chatting with your mum or sister or whoever. With men, I think so much of what they experience and go through tends to be behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And I don't think many men and, you know, younger boys are as vocal about what they experience. They tend to internalize a lot of that stuff. And I think we classically see that when it comes to conceiving, that what ends up happening is that a lot of women will just naturally presume that it's their fault. And, you know, I so often see couples who, you know, the man and the woman come together, and all of the attention and all of, you know, what's been going on seems to be focused around the woman. So when I turn to the man and I ask him, it's almost as if he hasn't really necessarily been part of that equation that actually no one's really, you know, the most he'll have done is the semen analysis. But with regards to sort of questioning a little bit deeper, doing more tests, more investigations, it doesn't really happen. And so I think for a lot of men, because they sort of go through life, perhaps, you know, not being as vocal and as verbal about what's going on, to get a semen analysis that's abnormal can be a real shock. You know, it's the first time that they kind of go, oh my God, there's something going on here and what could it be down to? Um, whereas with women, when even when we do find things that perhaps are abnormal, it's almost as if they semi-expect that <laughs> because they've, they've sort of anticipated that there could be something going on. Um, and I think what we really need to do now is change that entire narrative because actually it does take to you to tango unless you're a single woman wanting to conceive of course but even then you've got to be careful about the sperm donor that you use and, and we can talk about that and the whole um, sort of unregulated process that also can go on with with sperm donation but you know it is really really important to consider both because it's a process that involves both male and female factor and so that whole culture and narrative does need to change it's really important it does change and I think studies like this and this research look this is nothing new we, we have heard about this for the last couple of years that there, there have been these studies which have been flagging these alarming rates of sperm declines in both number of sperm and how good that sperm is as well and you know these figures they're really shocking actually, because this has happened in the last 40 years alone. I mean, it's been happening before then. But the figures, the stats in terms of, you know, the halving of sperm numbers over the last four decades, it's really dramatic. And it makes us wonder what on earth is going to happen in the next 40 years unless we do something about that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what's causing that, so we don't know exactly, but we suspect, and a lot of research is suggesting that this is environmental that there are lots of things that men are exposed to now in terms of how they're living which has changed dramatically again over the last 40 years which could be really detrimental to the sperm. We think that there are these really key important windows in terms of sperm development and also in terms of when a man's testicles might be under the influence of these environmental factors. And one of these windows is actually when the man is a fetus, so inside the mother's womb, and when the fetus is getting programmed, essentially, through the process of epigenetics so this is this whole science which is you know you I'm sure have heard a lot about and it's a really really trendyish field but really what it's telling us is that there are so many things which control gene expression and whereas we used to think that so many conditions and so much of our wellness was governed by genes actually we're finding now that the environment has a really huge role and when it comes to discussing sperm the environment that the mothers exposed to when she's pregnant is really really important Mm -hmm. because that whole environment is conditioning the fetus that's developing inside of her. So when these cells start off, they are cells which eventually develop and they essentially nurture, look after and and, and produce the sperm when a man goes through puberty. So unless they are looked after in that initial environment, they are potentially going to become dysfunctional later in life so that's the prime time really when we need to be thinking about you know what is the mother doing what is she being exposed to how is she being looked after which is determining the health of that child and has son later in life
0: so that would be things like their stress levels their diet exercise alcohol all of these like confounding variables that could be impacting the fetus
1: yes exactly that so all these things that we sort of almost take for granted and we don't necessarily discuss in much detail but all of those things that you've named are really important but also in addition to that you know factors that we're exposed to through just the air that we breathe all the pollution that's yeah. out there now right so many factors the plastics that we use the microplastics in what so about the many products yes exactly that so your average sort of you know shampoo conditioner perfume whatever it is that you're putting on yourself you might be using that every day there's no warning label at the back. If you look at a typical bottle, you'll see that there are loads of ingredients which are listed, most of which you can't pronounce. (laughs) They're like gobbledygook. But if you look in detail, a lot of those products contain what are called endocrine disruptors. So that means they can affect the hormonal system. And in addition to which, they can also affect how eggs and sperm develop. So it's really, really vital that we start getting this information out there because these are what are called xenoestrogens. So they mimic the natural estrogens in our bodies and they use the same receptors. So if they're capable of doing that, then they're also capable of influencing cell behavior and the genes, our actual DNA. So that's why it's really, really important that that we start having bigger conversations about this. You know, I, I think for some of your listeners they may potentially be hearing about this for the first time because there just isn't enough information out there and you know someone might think well you know just because I'm using this shampoo what difference is that seriously going to make and it's not that you know one hit of that is going to make a big difference but these accumulative effects over time if you're mm-hmm. doing that over many many years right then actually that starts to have some kind of impact which becomes amplified later on. And as I say, there are these key windows for men. One is when they're a fetus and the other is when they're going through puberty, when they're starting to grow and develop sperm. And essentially, these are the really, really important times when their exposure to certain environmental factors can have a profound impact later in life that can become amplified.
0: Isn't it interesting because I think there's so much shame for both female and men Maybe even more so a man because it first of all it's put on the onus of the woman, and yeah. then it goes to the man. And, yeah. and I think even just a man hearing that that actually it's not really his fault because mm. it starts in the it starts in the
1: fetus. Yeah, he has no yeah.
0: control over that. Yeah, um, and, and it isn't anyone's fault. But even just thinking about it in that in that way, so from that, should we be really aware of the products that we're using in our homes, the products that we're using in our skin? Should it be more natural? Is that, is that yeah. what we should be leaning more towards? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think this whole concept of sort of more toxin-free living, if you like, to put a label on it, mm-hmm. um, which really summarises that. Look, it's almost near to impossible to lead a completely toxin-free life. I mean, we're living in London, right? I know, just that's what what I was we're... just thinking. I'm really not doing myself any favours. <laughs> but but you know, we're we're constantly inhaling things and substances yeah. that are in the air that we we can't help but do, yeah. right? And this isn't about becoming obsessive over this, but it's just making much more conscientious decisions where we can and and here's my real bugbear about this and I have been vocal about this in in the public media too that you know so many of these things they cost a lot of money well
0: that was my next thought was actually this still seems to be quite a heightened privilege
1: yeah right exactly it's almost like it's a privilege to be able to afford to have good health and, you know, to be well. And it just shouldn't be like that. You know, it shouldn't be elitist like that Mm. because actually we all deserve that. And this has generational repercussions. So actually, you know, the the, the whole concept of organic food, pesticide-free food, you know, toxin-free products, that should be accessible to all, not just the privileged few. And I think that we need to really focus our efforts, and I am talking about the government here as well, you know, that first of all, we need to recognise infertility and subfertility as a disease, which it is, and then we need to start taking focused efforts to try and improve that For most people, just through, you know, drinking water that hasn't necessarily been filtered. Again, you're potentially exposing yourself to certain chemicals that haven't been removed from that. Again, most people aren't aware of that. But, you know, it's these small little steps that you can take to buy yourself a water filter to if you're, you know, at taking lunch to wherever you're going making sure that it's plastic free if possible you're not using aluminium foil you know you're replacing it with more sustainable choices which are also toxin free because it's that long-term effect that we sort of worry about here and making that cheap enough for people
0: and like what about men now so maybe men who might be listening to this or partners of the men that listen mm. to this might be thinking okay well that's something i can't change But what are the things that I could change that could be affecting my infertility?
1: Yeah. So it's the things that you'd mentioned before, things like nutrition, which is your domain. That's so important, right? Um, And that can really change so many factors. I get asked all the time about, you know, supplements and what should I be taking. And and yes, supplements absolutely have a role, you know, and they are important, especially in this day and age when a lot of people aren't necessarily getting the nutrition that they need through food. But you know nothing is a replacement for a poor diet. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a good diet, if you're not consuming good nutrients, then that is just not only going to affect your fertility, but so many other aspects of your health as well. So that's probably the biggest thing mm-hmm. that you can invest in. And then things like exercise, you know, making sure that you're exercising at least three times a week, The recommended sort of expert average is 150 minutes across those three sessions, if you like. But making sure you're doing that because that does affect your metabolism and it also affects your fertility. And then stress is a major one. Um,
0: Is that one of the main things you see in clinic with infertility? Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. It's really strange because sometimes when I just ask people, how stressed are you? or are you stressed? The first thing they say to me is, no, 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 I'm not stressed at all. And then we sit down (laughs) and we go through an average day and what they're doing. And almost inevitably, they sort of look and go, oh my God, I'm actually a lot more stressed than I realise. And the issue with that is that most of us are exposed to really chronic degrees of stress because Again, our lives have changed so much and we're under so much pressure now, you know, financially, in terms of our careers, in terms of when we're gonna have children, how we're gonna have them. We're carrying these burdens around with us all of the time. I mean, you know, if you live in London, just the stress of commuting and getting to wherever it is you need to, getting emails, responding to those on time, all of this is cumulative again. And the thing about stress is that I think it's so misunderstood and it's so underestimated as well. I mean, I can talk about stress for the whole (laughs) podcast and we've got loads more questions to get through. But suffice it to say that it absolutely affects so many aspects of your health and fertility. So it affects your neurological system. It affects your hormonal system. So cortisol, which is the hormone that's produced in response to stress, can actually impact your progesterone levels. So if you're busy producing cortisol because you're stressing all of the time, that means that essentially these molecules and substrates which are being used to produce cortisol are being deprived from being able to produce progesterone because they use similar substances. And therefore, if you're not producing enough progesterone, your luteal phase so the second half of your cycle can become compromised. Your periods can become compromised. Quite often, women will notice abnormalities with their periods. They'll either come later or before when they're really, really stressed out. I think most of us have have noticed that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just... A really sort of simple summary of how stress can affect your fertility but it is of course far more complex than that it can really affect a lot of these biochemical processes which are going on internally and so we we need to be really mindful about how we're dealing with stress sometimes there's very little we can do in terms of how much stress is being thrown at us and what we're intercepting and what we're dealing with you know so many of our jobs are just naturally stressful but it's how we deal with it it's making sure that we're aware that we're doing something about it and we're taking natural measures to try and reduce that you know and that's all these esoteric and alternative therapies that can come in there that can be super useful
0: I am thrilled about this week's sponsor who is supporting this podcast because it's one that I'm an avid user of. I have been using it for over a year and a half. Natural Cycles is the only CE certified contraceptive app in Europe, and it is also FDA cleared in the US. I myself came off the contraceptive pill about a year and a half ago, but I really wanted something to one, tell me about how my moods fluctuate, my PMS starts and also just being able to track my period, but as well as my fertility. The app's algorithm is able to confirm if you're within the fertile window by analysing your basal body temperature and other fertility indicators. I personally have the Aura Ring and a few months ago, they teamed up with Aura, where now you can sync your Aura Ring to your Natural Cycles app. You can also use a thermometer. Since it's an app, it is 100% natural, which means it's non-hormonal and it has no side effects. Now, if you want to get 20% off your annual subscription and a free thermometer, go to naturalcycles.com livewell. I honestly cannot recommend this app enough. Honestly, I've been recording a few podcasts this week and we have one coming up. The week after this one comes out, near the end of December with Tommy Wood, and he was mm. just fascinating. He was just saying how stress and negative emotions can really influence your physiology. And I just yeah. think stress is just one of the biggest things that we don't talk about. And especially, totally. I do think there's stress when you're trying to think about conceiving mm. or wanting to get pregnant already is a stressful situation. Mm. So then Mm -hmm. you've got the impacts of that on top. Mm. But something that I really want to touch upon, and I'm not sure if I'm going to say this correctly, before we finish on men's health, there's two things. You talk a lot about (laughs) testicular dysgenesis.
1: Testicular dys... No, I can't say. Testicular dysgenesis. Tongue twister. Testicular (laughs) dysgenesis. Oh, my God, I can't even say it. (laughs) Anyway... TDS. (laughs) That TDS. <laughs> Such
0: a better way to say it. What is this? Because I think many men, even myself, I've not even heard of this. So that's a really big common problem you were talking about and also an indicator of other chronic problems maybe in their health. So first of all, what is that for yeah. many men or women listening who go, I'm not sure what they just said, even if they said it correctly. <laughs> yeah. But
1: what is it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's this triple whammy that we're kind of seeing um, associated with male infertility. So one of the things that there's been, as you say, a lot of talk in the media about is the fact that men's sperm counts have declined so dramatically in recent years. But at the same time, we've also noticed there's been an increase in testicular cancer and also that there's been an increase in a cross-section of what we generally call genitourinary conditions. So this could be things like underscender testicles Or abnormalities to do with how the urethra attaches to the penis. So these are developmental abnormalities and this is why the whole concept of epigenetics and the environment has been suggested as a potential causative factor behind all of this which ties all of them in together and this is why especially because of the developmental issues that period of time when a man is still a fetus inside the mother's womb that is a really really crucial time um, when he is essentially his whole reproductive system is being programmed and this goes for women too and also on the point of stress that we were talking about you know stress doesn't just matter in terms of the man and woman wanting to conceive It also matters in the lead-up. So when we talk about the fetus and the mother who's pregnant, the amount of stress that she is exposed to really, really matters because all that's happening and going on with her body in terms of the hormones that are being released and the biochemical signaling is also programming the fetus. And so it's a really vital period of time when we have to be conscientious about what the mother is actually doing and and what she's going through. And there are actual studies um, that look at this, you know, and we've got lots of evidence now that women who go through particularly traumatic events when they're pregnant, that that has consequences not just on their health later in life, but also their children's health as well. This stuff is really, really important. Um, The other thing that's also on the rise is something called Klinefelter syndrome, which is when a man has an extra copy of the X chromosome, and essentially that can make him that can compromise his fertility and That is something that, again, people are questioning as to why that is happening, why are we suddenly finding that so many more men, when we do investigations behind why a man is subfertile or infertile, we can find this disorder. And we again think that that may be tied in with essentially this programming that's going on within the foetus and these environmental factors that could be impacting on testicular development.
0: I think so many men listen to this, or even women and their partners, and especially myself listen to this, have just, you know, our eyes are open a lot more. Yeah. So I know that women can regularly go for MAT checks and their fertility, but can men do the same? And if so, what can they be looking out for? Because I am very aware, and I spoke to you about this when Mm. I came in, and this is a different section, but there's a lot of tests out there on the nutrition side of intolerances or allergies. They're not the gold standard method. They're not ones that we rely on and Mm. they're not great predictors. So for me, I know that there's a lot of fatty tests out there. Mm. Fertility is obviously not my area. So is it the same... On that side of things, like if men want to are listening to this and thinking, maybe I want to go and get checked, what would you recommend as an MOT? And what do they need to look out for?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, whereas we've heard of the fertility MOT for the woman... Mm. You know, that same concept doesn't really seem to exist so much for a man. Um, and I think that's really, really inadequate and, and quite shocking, actually, mm. because we absolutely need to have these tests in place for men and need to be able to do these consultations and take all these different factors into account and, and have a chat with the men who are concerned or who may have a family history of something that could be impacting them. So I think the most basic thing you can do, which won't cost you a lot of money, um, is to go and get a semen analysis. doesn't matter. GM so you can request it of a GP but quite often a GP won't do it unless you've been trying for a certain period of time and then that test needs to be done but even if you go to get it privately you know it's not that expensive a test to have and it's easily done but that at least allows you some level of insight into what could be going on so that when it comes to you wanting to think about starting a family you've got some reassurance from that, or if it's the opposite, if there are abnormalities that are there, then there's time to do something about it, Mm -hmm. right, And, and to sort of implement certain things in place. And here's the really good thing, that this may all sound like doom and gloom. The other side to this is because we know the environment so heavily influences spam, the great thing is that we now know that there are so many things that can be done to reverse those effects. And here's the thing that, you know, men turn over sperm every three months. They produce new sperm every three months. So they have a real opportunity to really sort of focus their efforts on that and to make a really big difference. And I've seen men just through, you know, cleaning up their diets and, and eating in a healthier way, completely reverse some of their abnormalities on a wow. semen analysis, which is incredible, right? So sometimes it's, it's just doing these really simple things, whatever is within your reach, That means you can actually have a really, really big impact and it doesn't need to cost you a lot. It doesn't necessarily even involve huge amounts of effort, but it's just being aware. It's just having that information in front of you to be able to go, okay, you know, I need to do something about this and I'm going to do something sooner rather than later before I find myself in this situation, preempting yeah. a potential situation.
0: And I think that's so important and it leads me on to my next part, actually, which is going to be around misinformation because I do mm. think sometimes, and this can be in health in general, mm. we are so overwhelmed sometimes by the amount of information and then also the amount of misinformation mm. that's out there. And, 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 you know, science is forever changing. Mm. And so information does change but I do think for the average person it just sometimes feels a bit overwhelming and especially around this subject there can be a lot of anxiety coming up when we see certain headlines being made and I think what I'd love to talk about here in this section is being a woman in my 30s there's this fear that kind of comes in with your biological clock rush to find the right partner am I also going to drop off my with my fertility levels And a lot of conversations within my friends at the moment are all around this subject. And everyone has different opinions, everyone's heard different advice. And so you end up having a lot of conflicting messages where you're not really sure about what to believe, what not to believe. So I'd love to ask you, at what age does the reproductive chances start to drop? I've heard it can be 35. I've also heard it can be 37. Is that also the same for men? Because I hear a lot around this of just women. But I don't think we ever actually go... Oh, well, it's the same for men because we have this belief, or I do, that men can have years and years and years to think about this. Right. So I'd love to ask you that question. Is it the fear factor of hitting your 30s and you drop off the cliff or do you have longer?
1: So this is a little bit of a bugbear for me because that whole concept of dropping off a cliff, right, I think it's a really inaccurate one. Um, And that happens for very, very few people that they suddenly find themselves in a situation where they have very low reserves um, within a short space of time, whereas before things may have been fine. On the whole, this is a gradual decline that is influenced by age in both men and women. So really want to stress that it does happen to men too. And we think that with men on average, it sort of begins to have a more significant impact around the age of 40. With women, it is slightly earlier than that. So yeah, you know, 35 like you've heard of is the age that most people have in their heads is when that decline starts to happen. And that decline is in both the number of eggs and also how good those eggs are. So the DNA integrity of those eggs. And both of those factors begin to decline, which is why we can find and and often see that, you know, when a woman is older, she may struggle to conceive. And also the risk of miscarriage starts to go up and potential congenital abnormalities as well. And that's all associated with this decline that we see, which is heavily influenced and related to age. But here's the thing that when you ask me, when will that happen?, It's almost an impossible question to answer because people are so different. And for some women, they can go through an earlier menopause. You know, they can sometimes have a really strong family history of this. And they can suddenly, you know, find themselves in their early 30s or early 40s going through the menopause, whereas normally it's supposed to happen, you know, closer to the age of 50. So for those women, it's really, really important that they know that they might be in that at-risk group, and that if they are, they have a chance to do something about that, you know, whether it's freezing their eggs or, you know, starting their family slightly earlier, but they are given these opportunities, the same opportunities to have their own biological children, if that's what they want to do. And this is where the whole concept of testing and being proactive about it and thinking about these things is really, really important. So for those women, they will have an accelerated rate of decline compared to the average woman. And then there are those women, you know, and I do see these women, too, who, you know, are in their early 40s. And they're fertile. They're they're really fertile. You know, they have good reserves. Their eggs, as well, are, are good. And you know, they'll get pregnant. I mean, I had during this pandemic. I was working a lot on the front line, and um, a lot of people found that they couldn't necessarily access the help that they needed. So you know, people were at home, and I'd like to think you know, hopefully having lots of sex and not as stressed out as as normal. And what I found was just a really overwhelming number of women in their 40s who I was seeing who were pregnant naturally I had one who was 48 and she was pregnant for the third time you know and it came as quite a big shock for her now I'm not saying that's normal and and it's not you know the chance of that happening is really really small but it is possible and so I just think in a way we, we need to move away from that narrative of well you know there's there's this cliff that we approach and then suddenly it's all over. It is a much more gradual process than that and it's different for each woman and I think to be able to have some kind of idea about how fast your own biological clock is ticking, you need to potentially be thinking about doing some of these tests ahead of time. And, and you know, we can talk about that as well. Because yeah. I think that's quite useful for, for people to know.
0: Absolutely. And that's something that I also, personally, speaking honestly from myself, if I've looked at looking at those type of tests, I have no idea mm. what is right mm. and what is not right. Some people say you can only get it, the truth from a scan. Yeah. Others kind of say, oh, no, it's looking at these specific hormones, like the, FS, the mm. F sh Mm -hmm. hormone um and so i'm also aware as i said earlier there's a lot of fatty tests out there so what should we be looking at and how can we make sure that it's the correct one that we're gonna take so i can also imagine if somebody doesn't go for a correct one and they get misinterpreted results that can also
1: feel quite yeah worrying totally and and i would say in answer to your question it's really a combination of all of these things so You know I'm really really passionate about people starting this process earlier in their lives and I know you have a lot of younger listeners you know women in their 20s who might not necessarily be thinking about having children anytime soon right but this is something that a lot of women will be considering later in life but what you need to do is make sure that 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 scaffolding that terrain that ground is set for pregnancy later and the best possible way you can do that is to address lots of these little factors that could be affecting your fertility so we spoke a lot about lifestyle that's really really important and making sure you're paying attention to that even when you're younger you know because all these things end up having an effect later down the line and especially if you're someone who's on a on a long-term contraceptive or been taking the pill for a long time because you may not necessarily know what your periods are like You know, you may have no idea, especially if you're taking things back to back and you're not having a period or your period is really an artificial period because it's being induced by the medication you're on. So essentially, we do know that our periods, our menstrual cycles are really strong indicators of our health. And the same goes with infertility. That actually, if you are someone who suffers with infertility or you are someone who has irregular menstrual cycles, you are far likelier to develop certain conditions later down the line, like diabetes, like um, cardiovascular complications, even stroke. And you also have a slightly higher risk of premature death as well. So these things, our fertility and our menstrual cycles, determine a lot about what goes on later in life. And the same is true for men, by the way. So when we talk about male infertility, men who are subfertile or infertile, also, have a much higher chance of metabolic disorders like cardiovascular disease and diabetes later in life. So, it applies to both sexes. This is why I say we need to treat infertility as a disease because mm. it is. As and an it's indicator. an indicator. Exactly that. We both said it at the same time it's an indicator and a really, really strong barometer of your long term health, mm. is what I would say about that. So, yeah, doing these tests earlier, which is a combination of looking at your lifestyle. Looking at even things like... But what other tests that we can look for? like what
0: are the ones because i obviously i now know i'm going to come to you straight after this what is it that people can look for what is it that they go online for and find on these tests
1: okay so objectively speaking in terms of the diagnostic tests we can do there's a transvaginal ultrasound which is an internal ultrasound that you can have that looks at your ovaries it looks at something called ovarian reserve so what we do is count the number of follicles these little sacs that contain eggs and how many of those are in your ovaries and that can give us an indication of how fast that biological clock is ticking personally to you. We can also look to see if there are any abnormalities with the ovaries, things like cysts. We look at the uterus at the same time and we see are there any fibroids that are there that might impact your ability to get pregnant. Polyps, um, little, you know, growths of tissue that can happen on the inside of the womb all these things are really important and it's that picture of looking at the pelvis in a bit more detail mm. to see are there any gross abnormalities that we can spot on there immediately and if so then do we need to deploy other investigations to to look at that sometimes you know the, the some signs of endometriosis which is a really important condition that we can talk about as well affects one in 10 women can be found on ultrasound scan as well even if a woman's not having symptoms
0: and that also takes up to seven years to diagnose i've heard from seven
1: ten years yeah yeah it's it's ridiculous and you know part of that again i can talk about endometriosis for the whole podcast but so much of that is to do with misinformation or not enough information about endometriosis. There's many doctors who don't even necessarily know about this condition. And also the fact that endometriosis can affect so many of your different um, body systems and organ systems. Because act- it can
0: really spread to your lungs. Yes, and
1: yeah. yeah. It's small, not
0: just the womb, is it?
1: Yeah, in a small number of cases. And people think that it's just related to your period, but not necessarily. Pain, which is probably the biggest sort of symptom that you can have with this condition, can occur every single day for women, actually. And not just with their periods, not just during sex. So it's about getting that education out there and making women more aware of this condition and that they may potentially have it. So doing an ultrasound scan can give us a lot of information, but also doing some blood tests can be really helpful. So something called AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone that's produced by the ovaries, can also give us an indication of ovarian reserve. And I always say, if you're going to do these tests, it's best to do them together because some people just focus on doing the blood test. And yes, you can get some information with that but it's always best to combine the two because the two together give us a much more reliable indicator of what's going on at that present moment in time. What they sadly can't do is tell you how fast your fertility will decline as you age. We don't have the means of being able to predict that reliably at the moment but I think having a basic test in place to know where you're at at a particular point in time is super super useful and then looking at all these other factors and if you're someone who's got a chronic health condition let's say it's endometriosis or PCOS polycystic ovaries you know you are someone who already should have been made aware that you may potentially struggle to get pregnant you may not Mm -hmm. but you may and I think it's really important that therefore you do go through some of these tests to a get the condition properly diagnosed but be to also check and make sure that the condition especially with endometriosis hasn't had a really big impact already on your fertility and caused some issues that we can intervene with and that we can do something about rather than potentially just taking the pill for many many years suppressing all of those symptoms not knowing what you've got coming off it and then finding yourself struggling.
0: It's so interesting hearing it because I think a lot of people will want to go and get that done. And we're going to come on to the mental health side of it. But I do mm. think there is a barrier of feeling terrified yeah. to someone come back to you and go, actually, it's not looking good. For anyone, I'm just trying to think about people who are going to go and get this done. Mm. It's the same as, as I think about when people get their results of looking at their DNA and seeing what they could in the future be at risk of it's Alzheimer's disease, maybe it's breast cancer. I always have this feeling of someone opening up their results and seeing it's not what they wanted and maybe that's the same with going through this process what advice do you give to those people that maybe mm. are getting the results back mm. that isn't necessarily what they hoped for
1: but I think it's really natural to be worried about mm. what you're going to see on the other end that that's just I think being human <laughs> really um, and especially as we were saying for women because we always sort of you know, anticipate with ourselves that there could be a problem or there could be that it's our fault or that there's, you know, something that we can't control here. And, and that's the biggest factor in this, that I think so much of it can feel like it's outside of our control. But remember, we were talking about epigenetics in the environment. There are a lot of reversible factors. There are a lot of things that can be done to intervene as long as it's done on time. And I think if you are someone who, doesn't necessarily get the result that you want it's really really important first of all to well to be proud of yourself but first of all taking that initiative and that action because no matter what information you get it's information I
0: know, and that's what my thought is, but I can imagine people feeling terrified, and I think feeling empowered, actually, is, is well, the way we want to look at totally,
1: it. totally, because I think once you've got that information there, then really you can't help but feel empowered, because mm-hmm. you sort of know what you're dealing with then, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got time to do something about it, and to consider your options and what you do. And I think as long as you're armed with the details of that information, that can only serve you well in the future not knowing and sort of pretending that things are okay when they may not be actually can lead you into a lot of difficulties later down the line and things may be totally fine but I don't think any woman or man wants to find themselves in a situation where they're looking to conceive you know in their late 30s early 40s and they don't know anything about their fertility and suddenly they're finding themselves having problems because Mm -hmm. that's when you are a little bit more limited in terms of the amount of time you've got to deal with some of those things and also more limited in your options. So no matter what your results are, it's really, really important that you feel like you've taken a certain level of control by getting these tests done and by having gone to see a doctor or a specialist to have that discussion and to see what you can do about it because that will do wonders for you later down the line and you'll feel so much more grateful that you got them done. It
0: leads me so perfectly onto my next part <laughs> because I really want to talk about egg freezing here and it's been quite prominent in the news recently with Jennifer Anderson and she was trying to get pregnant by IVF and yeah. she actually and she's struggling. And she said that she wished she knew the complications of this. And she wished that she had done egg freezing when she was younger to help help her hair get pregnant. Mm -hmm. One, somebody speaking about that raises a huge amount of awareness, which I think is only a fantastic thing. But I do think, and again, I'm I'm bringing it back to me because I can't put this on everyone, but reading that did give me a bit of fear Mm -hmm. that, Should I be going to get my eggs frozen? Mm. And it's that mindset where you all of a sudden you are aware of it because it's there and there's knowledge in it. There's somebody who's gone through that. And so I do think egg freezing is now becoming much more of a conversational topic Mm. between my friends. I've had quite a few of my peers themselves go and have their eggs frozen. And it's opened my eyes into the whole world of egg freezing. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, I've kind of seen them really struggle with it as well. Mm -hmm. And they've been all different ages. Some have been in their 30s and some have been in their 40s. So I really want to talk here a little bit about egg freezing. What are the stats around getting your eggs frozen and the end result of pregnancy and actually then a live birth at the end of it. What's the statistics here?
1: So this question, it's a bit like when we were talking earlier about, you know, at what age should I be worried about conceiving? And it's really, really heavily influenced by age, as you may expect to hear mm. by now. So you know, this whole conversation, first of all, around egg freezing is such an important one. And I think we should all be so grateful to Jennifer Aniston for opening the doors on this. Because, you know, that is a huge thing for anyone to say in, in public. But it's also really, really important because it goes back to what we were saying. Having this information earlier, having the education around it, being informed, having these options can only lead you into then taking some form of control of your life and in terms of what you want to do and how you want to conceive your children. So if you are someone who is thinking about freezing your regs, I want to start off with maybe sort of flagging a a recent study that's come out of Imperial College London where they were looking at the best age to freeze your regs. And you mentioned having some friends in their 40s who were doing this, and I suspect part of that reason is that they may not even have heard about it until later in their lives, right? And though, you know, some women will have this done in in their early 40s, it isn't the best age to do it. And actually, the best age, according to this study, but also other studies before that, is ideally before the age of 37. And that's because of this decline that we were talking about, which on average starts around the age of sort of 35 to 37. It is different for each woman. But what you don't want to do with egg freezing is do it too soon when the chances of you finding a partner and, you know, settling down and having a child are, are quite big. And, and actually, you may just be able to do it all on your own. And therefore, you've gone through quite an interventional and also, you know, quite demanding and draining procedure, which we can talk about and spent a lot of money on yeah. something that you don't necessarily need but what you also don't want to do is find yourself in a situation where actually your egg reserves are low the eggs that we collect may not necessarily survive the freezing process because remember eggs are just a single cell so they're very vulnerable and they may not necessarily survive the freezing and thawing and in addition to which we know very little about these eggs so someone might feel quite reassured that they've got a lot of eggs let's say you know we get 10 to 15 eggs which, by the way, we typically get across a number of cycles, not necessarily just one. This is what I mean when I say it can be quite a demanding procedure on your body and your finances. And then even if you get all of these eggs, you don't really know anything about them until it comes to fertilization. And for some of these women, that fertilization may be much later down the line. So it may give women a false sense of hope that actually, you know, they've got all these eggs, But actually, those eggs, out of all those eggs, maybe only half will fertilise, you know, or maybe only a third. And this is why, again, depending on your age, where that probability of egg dysfunction is, is greater... I will always counsel women about also potentially thinking about having embryos created and frozen. So this is where you actually do the fertilization with donor sperm if the woman is single or with a partner sperm, if she's with someone but they just don't want to have children right now. Because putting the eggs through that process of fertilization and then creating embryos already puts them through a certain number of tests and natural selection, if you like, to get to that point so that you can feel a bit more reassured about hopefully getting pregnant later but none of this is a guarantee and in terms of whether you you go on and have a live birth and a baby that you can carry with you and home really significantly depends on your egg reserves your age and also how good those eggs are as well.
0: Wow so it is earlier the better but there still isn't it feels like
1: buying a lottery ticket. So much of fertility can feel like that but actually you know, remember what we were saying about the environment and its influence. So we spoke about the effect of the environment on sperm, but actually the same is really true for eggs, that these eggs exist within follicles, these fluid-filled sacs inside of your ovaries. And they're there for a long time, you know, because you have your follicles even before you're born when you're a fetus, right? And you actually have the highest number of eggs you're ever going to have just before you're born. And then when you are, that starts to decline and then that decline becomes slightly steeper, around the age of 35, 37 on average. But what you can constantly be doing is thinking about how you're conditioning and programming these eggs because they exist in these follicles and it's the follicles that form that environment, that immediate environment for these eggs. So if you're looking after yourself through how you're eating, your nutrition, through your exercise, making sure that you're managing your stress as best as you can, you're being mindful of it, you're using toxin-free products wherever you can, you're looking after your mental health. So that's another really big one that I'm a strong believer that our mind and our emotions can have a huge impact on our health, our physical health as well, and a huge influence on disease and fertility too. So looking after yourself from all these different perspectives can really positively condition these eggs and look after them up to the point of, of older age. So there is actually a lot that you can do. Yes, some of that is out of your hands and is genetic and, you know, is depending on certain variables that you can't control. But there's an awful lot that you can. And remember, that environment the eggs are exposed to is constantly signaling to those eggs and to the DNA and affecting that gene expression. So it's really, really important that we take that seriously. And I just want to add in here to make people realize that this is actual science that's saying this and not, you know, we would that we spoke about stress and how underestimated it is. And there's been a recent study. It was done on, on animals, so, okay, not on humans, but we expect that the results will translate to humans, where when mice were exposed to high degrees of stress, the female mice actually had lower follicle counts, so a lower number of eggs, and their AMH levels, the antimalarian hormone, was also reduced as well. So we could tell that actually these mice had already had a compromise level in terms of their fertility just through stress alone. So if you imagine, if you flip that round and start thinking about stress and how to address that, then the opposite might be true, that actually what you may end up doing is helping to improve you know, your egg quality and potentially even the egg counts. We don't know that yet, but it's an interesting field of research that I think we're gonna hear and see a lot more about in the future.
0: Our next partner is a trusted and highly concentrated omega-3 brand, Minami. Did you know that it's important to consider an omega-3 supplement if you do not consume one to two portions of oily fish a week? Because omega-3s contribute to a normal brain function, a healthy heart, and vision. So lucky for you guys, Minami is a brand I wholeheartedly recommend for the whole family as they stand out from the rest. They are the omega-3 experts. Minami is one of the highest concentrated and pure omega-3 brands available in the market. So you get more omega-3 nutrition per soft gel, which means fewer capsules to swallow. They have a high concentration of 90 to 95% of omega-3 per capsule. They are free from solvents and fillers, and they have a low environmental impact, sourcing sustainable fish, unpopulated water, yourself. I'm a huge believer in the importance of omega-3 for our health. So you can find Minami products online at www.revital.co.uk. Thank you very much, Minami. Stress is, honestly, so many things through this podcast. I think we're on 100 episodes now. (laughs) Stress, there's two things. That we're all totally individual and we have to suit our health needs to us and not by what we're told we actually have to like understand our health as an individual and that's something that I have always honed on about it's really important and stress seems mm. to be like one of the biggest determining factors mm. which affects all of our health but I think it's something that we're all you said it earlier actually people come into your clinic and <laughs> go I'm not stressed but I think none of us really understand what stress is because yeah. I think we're all chronically stressed but we see it as smoke coming out of our ears and tears streaming out of our eyes but necessarily that isn't stress is it yeah and it's one of those so how I think we we look at stress and um and just more of these conversations that we're having it's just such a big part in so many areas of our health that yeah I think it's the one of the main factors that
1: we can all relate to yeah yeah and the whole concept of of trauma as well that ties in with stress because I think that you know, most people, even when you talk about trauma, tend to think of, you know, post-war veterans, um, or really, really high degrees of trauma that may seem unrelatable to most people. But actually, think about it. We've just gone through a two-year pandemic. Mm. I know. We've kind of forgotten about that. Right.
0: I feel well, like I've got PTSD from just thinking
1: right, about it. So right, just... <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but we've all been through massive amounts of stress, like to live... Without our normal liberties and freedoms, to be worried sick about, you know, how exposed we're going to be to other people, whether we're going to pass COVID on or not, all of those things. My goodness, you know, th- those levels of stress I think <laughs> have been unheard and unseen yeah. for, for many, many generations. And so, again, you know, most of us just kind of tend to take it in our stride mm-hmm. and forget about it. But actually, what we've all gone through in the last few years is quite a high degree of trauma that hasn't been addressed in a lot of people. And if you look at all the research and work coming out about trauma um it's it's all you know essentially suggesting and saying the same thing that this has a really significant impact on our long-term health and it also has an impact on fertility absolutely it does because stress of any sort look you know acute stress when you're running for a bus exactly (laughs) running for a bus or meeting a deadline or whatever it is you know those things can't be helped and some of that stress is actually really positive you know we know that there are for example when you go and do cold therapy treatment Mm. um or you go and do a session of hot yoga you know those things will stress the body for acute periods of time Mm. but that stress when done in a controlled way can be really beneficial but only in in moderation, right? What you don't want is chronic degrees of stress, like with trauma, that is constantly in your subconscious because this is affecting. So, you ready for this tongue twister? I'm We're ready to say testicular Gosh, dysgenesis
0: and your. God, so, delect- dyslexic, not saying that.
1: <laughs> so, hypothalamo pituitary gonadal axis, which is HPG for short. And what essentially that's referring to is this communication network between our brain and our gonads, which is either our testicles or our ovaries. And there are many, many neurological, hormonal, immunological, biochemical connections between the two, which are heavily regulated by stress, right? So it's constantly signaling and affecting cell behavior. And I really think that in medicine, we need to start taking it seriously. You know, when you go and see your doctor, I'm hard pushed to find anyone who necessarily inquires about stress levels with people right but it's actually really really important because of the fact that our emotions and how we're dealing with those emotions and what's in our subconscious can really heavily condition our health and I do think that in the future we're going to see you know this evolving field of medicine which is going to be trauma-informed which is going to be taking all of these things into account which is going to be counting our brains and our consciousness and everything that's going on within here and mentally as a serious part of our health because it is you know yeah. our physical health is not disconnected from that
0: absolutely it's I mean we we are going to do listeners by the way a whole episode on stress this season so we've got Great. something just surrounding that specifically because it is just entwined through every mm. conversation I have
1: yeah isn't um, that interesting that tells yeah. you a lot as well doesn't it really it? does it mm. really
0: does and I think you know, we haven't talked much about conception, so I'd love to touch upon this, because anyone who's listened to this, or even in the future, when men and women, because I'm not just going to keep honing in on women on this, are looking to conceive, what should they be thinking about? Because I think there's loads of things you hear about your periods, or sex mm. positions, or things mm. like that. Like, what are the kind of the main fundamentals that can really help around conception?
1: So, we've covered a couple of the lifestyle factors already in terms of what can help. So, nutrition, exercise, stress, um, toxin-free living, shall we call it. But, you know, then going on to sex, yeah, you know, it's important if you're in a heterosexual relationship and wanting to conceive. So. First of all, having enough sex, making sure that you're having regular sex, you know, two to three times a week more, if you'd like to do more, if you've got time for more, which is great. <laughs> it's really, really important. Mm. And, you know, what you want to make sure is lots of people get stressed out again, <laughs> stress, about having sex. Stressed about sex. Stressed about sex. But they do. They get really stressed about sex because they sort of hone in on the fact they need to be having sex at the time they're ovulating. And yes, you know, it is true your egg is going to survive for up to 24 hours in the reproductive tract. And you want to make sure that there's sperm there to fertilize at that, that time. But the sperm can last in the reproductive tract for even up to five days. So as long as you're having regular sex, no matter you know, what time of your cycle, then you can almost forget about making sure that you're ovulating. I mean, we, we need to make sure you are. So that's why you want to get all these tests done that I've mentioned, and you want to make sure you're having regular cycles, I would just take that focus away from and the stress and pressure away from sex just at the point of ovulation. Because as long as it's regular, there's going to be enough sperm there, no matter when you ovulate. And, you know, lots of women will ovulate at slightly different times in different months. That's perfectly normal. Sometimes they may have cycles that are different lengths. Again, that's normal and can be influenced by so many other factors. So I just really want people to understand that you know hopefully <laughs> sex and its timing shouldn't feel so pressured you know and it sort of makes sex feel like it's this militaristic operation yeah.
0: right it reminds me of that episode <laughs> in Friends where Monica's yeah. like Chandler we've gotta have yeah. sex at this
1: point. Yeah right really it just puts so much pressure on people right <laughs> um and you know who can who can perform under those circumstances it's really hard. Plus it also really- takes it quite you know, into the headspace of sex, which actually,
0: after this episode this week that we recorded all about sex, it's, you know, it takes all of that passion and love making away and makes it quite methodical and that can also influence, you know, maybe a man's ability to actually produce that sperm within that, you know, it's really important. Yeah,
1: it is really important and look, I... Also, being as holistic as I am, it probably won't surprise you to know that I really strongly believe that the sort of sex you're having has a big influence on your ability to conceive. Because if you are under a lot of stress, remember what we were saying about stress and its impact on the body and hormonal release and biochemical release and so on, and the communication going on between your organs and cells. Well, the same is true if you're having, you know, spontaneous, passionate sex that's just about lovemaking, right? That's just about honoring the two two of you the energy absolutely it's totally different right the energetics are totally different plus what your body's producing during that is totally different you're far likelier to have an orgasm through that which you Yes, you don't need an orgasm to conceive, but it helps. Does it? Yes, it does, because an orgasm will also mean that you're releasing more oxytocin, which is the love hormone, but that also has an effect on your uterus and the fact that it can become much more receptive to a pregnancy as well. Plus, there is research to suggest that if you're having more regular sex, in the lead up to conception, then you're also priming the wound ready to receive a pregnancy, and you're reducing your risk of potential miscarriage because what you're doing is essentially conditioning your immune system, which is responding to the sperm that's there. The sperm is essentially what a foreign object, right? But you're conditioning your immune system to actually become more receptive. So all of these things really, really matter, and they affect so many aspects and what's going on internally and all these different Different complex systems that are responding to each other. So, you know, if you think about having sex just because you actually want to have sex with your partner and taking all that pressure away, which I know is hard if you've been trying for a long time, but it's so, so important that you develop that level of intimacy with each other, but also with yourself. Mm,
0: That's a big one.
1: That is a big one. And again, a huge subject. But one I do feel passionately about that I think so many people who are struggling can become so disconnected with themselves you know and can just start to see their bodies as a as a baby making machine right they just become reduced to their menstrual cycle and actually what can end up happening is that your self-esteem goes down you your libido naturally will go down as well but all of that stress is, is also affecting how you see yourself and, and how you see yourself as a woman, as a man, how sexually appealing you see yourself. And so much of that stuff really matters because I think with what young women and girls go through nowadays where there's such significant amounts of, of trauma, um, I mean, even through having a cervical smear, You know, like your first exposure to a gynecological procedure, which can so often be really traumatic, really painful. And women are so put off. But more than that, they sort of become disconnected with themselves or if they've had really negative sexual encounters as well. um, that can all be internalized by the body and actually carrying these emotions can influence your health and the expression of certain things like disease. Because I think the impact of some of those really negative emotional scenarios, if they're not dealt with, can give rise to certain conditions. So for example, vaginismus, which is where women can experience a lot of pain, not just during sex, but even in anticipation of sex. And I'd see it typically if a woman you know, can't tolerate a transvaginal probe and examination. So often I will find that if I start talking to that woman, there is almost inevitably, you know, a level of trauma she's experienced in her life, where she's disconnected, she's disassociated. And instead, what's happened is that her vagina has essentially taken on the burden of that trauma. And we know, again, through research, that the vagina and the brain have a really strong neurological Communication, right? Wow,
0: that you hear there that is about a link. Gut health, but you don't hear that yes, about the vagina yeah, and the brain,
1: right? So it this is exactly what happens that that you know there if you've had experiences which have have caused significant amounts of trauma or stress they can absolutely affect your pelvic organs if you think about you know the tension that that your pelvis might carry from previous encounters whether that was to do with pain during sex or negative pelvic experiences all of that can can have an impact not just in terms of any pain that you might experience in the pelvis but it can also have an impact on particular conditions that can express themselves in that area and really what they are are signals to essentially get our attention in terms of where trauma and certain feelings and emotions haven't necessarily been processed and our bodies are essentially saying to us look we need to do something about this and the body is an incredibly clever thing because it's always acting in our best interest it's always acting to defend us and protect us from harm right But if we don't give ourselves that time to process emotions and to process what might have happened in our childhoods and earlier on in our lives, it can actually become inbuilt into our bodies. It can start to affect our neurological wiring and so many things, including cell behavior through this process of epigenetics. Because when we talk about the environment, yes, we talk about things like nutrients, which can have an impact on our DNA, but you know, so can emotions. So can emotions. They're just as important. We
0: have such a, another word that's used in this podcast a lot, reductionist view um, Mm. of our health. Yeah. And emotional health is one that I bang on about a lot during this podcast just for the importance that I don't think we're ever taught to understand our emotions. And I think... Ben Brown, who I love, mm. talks a lot about um, us really only resonating with three emotions, but there's 150 emotions. And actually, if you ask someone to explain how they feel, they normally use these three words. Yes. Happy, sad, yes. angry. Yes, yes. It's very yeah. rare for them to go more mm. in depth yeah. into actually explaining how yeah. they're feeling in their emotions. They might not actually be feeling yeah. angry.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, they might be feeling a totally different emotion, but it's resonated as anger.
1: Yeah. And
0: yeah. there's this real block of understanding our emotions. And for that reason, I, I am very much in opinion with you that I think we hold a lot within our bodies. So IBS, IBD. Mental health, depression, all of these things start coming up yeah. as physical health conditions. Because yeah. it's
1: trapped. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, whereas this used to sound like woo-woo to a lot of people, you know, and then they mm. used to question the science about this. I mean, you know, just look at the research that's coming out. For example, We now know that endometriosis in a woman, which is associated quite often with pain, is very strongly linked with trauma earlier in life or trauma that the mother might have gone through while she was pregnant. So this goes back to that earlier programming, right? Um, We also know through so much research that so much of neurological wiring um, and and how we become as adults and, and the level of health and wellness that we have there is programmed up to the age of four. Right. So whatever a child might go through and experience in that period of time has a very deep level of impact later on. So when we talk about whatever form that trauma might take, you know, whether it's um, the loss of a parent or it's parents getting divorced, separation, um, not having enough to survive, um, being abused, all of that, even actually when later um, and neuroscientists talk about this, when these children are put into happy environments and things change, it's that initial impact in that first part of their lives that will go on and continue to have an effect even when those things are reversed. So it's really, really important that when we talk about conception, we also talk about the sort of people we want to be when we're parents, right? I know,
0: honestly, this is what I'm thinking. I'm not all thinking about, the, you know, how you are when you're pregnant. Yeah. How anxious you are, how busy you are, how stressed you are, because these are such big determinants.
1: Such big determinants. And going back to that initial issue of of intimacy with yourself, well, we need to develop intimacy with our own emotions. Mm -hmm. We need to become better at expressing our own emotions, talking about them, finding words Mm -hmm. to encapsulate what we want to say, what Brene Brown talks so beautifully um, about. But also intimacy with our bodies, right? Like, I am... (laughs) I mean, this will become your official tagline for the podcast, but I'm all for masturbation. Yeah. Like, I totally think that people do not do it anywhere near enough. No. Seriously. Um, and, I know, know, no, people... But I agree. I feel like I'm quite liberal about this
0: now this week because <laughs> I did a whole podcast on sex and masturbation and right. orgasms that's coming out in the new year. She advises that an hour a week yeah. um, to do exactly that. Yes.
1: Yes, and, you know, most people might find the thought of spending a whole hour masturbating a bit overwhelming, right, if they're not used to doing it or just... But it's interesting, right, because we always... She was saying we always
0: look at, like, the climax, and it's not about yeah. getting to climax. Yeah. So it's actually not about that. We have this instant gratification yeah. wired into us of, okay, we have sex, and then we climax. And actually, yeah. it's nothing to do with no. that. It's no, It's nothing to do with that. So it's not about trying to do that yeah. for an hour. yeah. And it's really yeah. interesting because it's how yeah. we're wired yeah. to believe that's what sex yeah. is. Yeah.
1: And and exactly that is this goal, um, sort of goal orientated approach, right? That actually is really wrong. It's a bit like, you know, having sex just to conceive, you know, there's a goal in mind. And we need to move away from that a bit like with, you know, masturbating with yourself. It isn't about that. It's about, you know, learning what your body feels like, what you like, what gives you a nice sensation, what you actually feel like down there. Because how can you know what you want, and what you want your partner to give you unless you know what feels nice for you but it's also important in my field of work because if you are storing a lot of tension there if if you are someone who hasn't necessarily processed their emotions and that's a whole lot of us by the way yeah you know there may be so much of that trapped in our reproductive organs and being able to release some of that tension sometimes when you can't find the words for these things right you can actually express that and release that through the process of masturbation and just being intimate with yourself yeah. that can really really help and and you know so many sexual healers will tell you about that that sometimes when when it's not possible to articulate what you feel your body can actually express it and sometimes that is associated with pain and you may need to go and see someone to help you with that but it's really really important that you recognize it and that you can start to do something about it i think for us as women generally we we hold this what we've spoken about before we hold so much tension trauma from previous experiences in those areas and so much of that is closely intertwined with our ability to be pregnant and can start to have an effect on our health as well
0: I'm so happy you raised that and I know you raised that with a bit of like oh gosh am i am about to say this but I just feel like why are we so ashamed to talk about yeah. it yeah like well, yeah. Also, men don't get ashamed to talk about it. <laughs> men are happily, say,
1: talking about themselves,
0: yeah. all the time. Yeah. But yeah. women,
1: yeah. it
0: just seems like this huge stigma. And I'm like, why?
1: Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be. And it's a bit like talking about our vulvas, vaginas, you know, our periods. We should be having open conversations about this because it's an answer and, <laughs> and you know these are normal conversations really to be having why should we make it to be and it is like that with with masturbation you know I think that in in an era it's so bizarre isn't it and paradoxical when there's so much porn around right and Which is you the can wrong type of thing totally to resonate sex totally with. totally when there's so much of that around and it's so easily accessible yet you know you hear this commonly we are a bit of a sexless generation in that we're not having enough sex necessarily and well no that's what a I read lot of
0: that from time out that london was the horniest city in the uk <laughs> i quite
1: like that one <laughs> so but here's interesting does that mean horniest as in like people want to have sex but they're not necessarily <laughs> finding the time to have sex <laughs> because i find that goes on in london a lot as well people just don't have time or if they do have sex you know they're it's real quick <laughs> Yeah, they're exhausted and they're having sex when they're exhausted or it's for like 10 minutes and, you know, it's done or yeah. it's about this goal, okay, let's just go ahead and do it, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and then it's done. Um, whereas, you know, yes, masturbating for an hour, I'm so glad she said that because that's fantastic and you know you might think that's a long period of time and maybe start off with smaller increments and segments and maybe spread them out during the week depends on the amount of time you've got but pretty soon i'll guarantee you'll probably want to spend that time with yourself because it's super interesting getting to know yourself and i personally advocate i think all of us should be having a date night you know with just ourselves Oh, yeah, I love
0: <laughs> that. Definitely, with just
1: ourselves like yeah. setting aside that time and whatever it is that makes you feel you know sexual whether it's putting nice underwear on buying yourself some flowers putting some nice perfume on some nice music but just developing that relationship with yourself because it is the most important relationship that you can have yeah and everything Constantly. else stems from that
0: and it's interesting I've started using this word a lot now in my keynote talks but um We talk a lot about self-care, and I've actually reframed it as self-respect.
1: Yeah. Because we can
0: look at self-care as quite fatty, and it's like, no, actually, it's giving yourself that respect Mm. that you would give to somebody else, but to yourself. Yes.
1: Rather than having, you know, things imposed on you. Because a lot of us as women as well, we don't necessarily like certain things that are done during sex but but we're too afraid to say I know, and that's right
0: another stigma yeah women just have
1: to kind of S- do it yeah like speaking up um but I think that the more confident you can be with yourself and your own body the better your ability to speak up and about genuinely that. men much prefer that yeah yeah totally <laughs> totally I mean look confidence is hot right yeah and I think in in a man or woman and and I think knowing who you are is really important but it goes further than that it's actually therapeutic as Mm -hmm. well because of the fact that in so much of the time it can really help us to process recognize and release certain emotions which are there and in particular for women because we do store a lot in our pelvis Mm -hmm. as well Um, and you know a lot of esoteric healers will talk to you about that that sometimes there is an embryological association as well between our throats and our pelvis and You know, when women find it really difficult to speak up for themselves and to vocalize, quite often you'll find that they have issues or particular conditions in their pelvis that are potentially on an energetic and meridian level associated with that. So the more you're able to appreciate yourself from down below, the better your ability to vocalize, to speak up, to set boundaries for yourself, to be much more true and authentic to who you are. The two are interlinked. And, and that's an important point to make. I'm so glad I've had two podcasts
0: highlighting the importance of this this week. And I also feel a little bit ashamed that it's taken me nearly 100 episodes to get these conversations on. But now I'm just so bloody glad I have because they're so important. Yeah. And it's not that I didn't want to. It's just one of these things where it's just not in your vicinity and being a woman. I'm like, why did I not do this before?
1: Yeah. Um, well, we just didn't know.
0: This I is know, the thing,
1: we didn't is... know any better. But mm. again, it's so great you've got this younger group of listeners that, that can hopefully start to kind of really change their lives around. It yeah. doesn't matter what age you are, even if you're someone in your late thirties, forties, even if you're, you know, in your fifties. It's, it's never too late. It's to never change. too late. It's never too late. And this stuff can really revolutionise your life. Mm. Truly it can. So yeah.
0: So this is <laughs> my final question, mm.
1: which is, it's a, a question that I ask
0: all of my guests and it's great. We've never had the same answer. Larissa, mm. what does live
1: well, be well mm. mean to you? I think to me, it means being authentic to who you are as a person and being emotionally in tune, you know, with yourself, because we talk a lot about physical factors um, and components of wellness, You know, there's a lot out there about that. And I am a really, really firm believer that really we hold all of that power. We shouldn't outsource that power. Yes, there are certainly things that we can introduce into our lives that can help us to be the healthiest version of ourselves. And medical care is a part of that. But never forget, that I think that the truest power is really within yourself. And I'm all for that self-empowerment. And so much of that power can only come about once you start to realize who you are and you change your consciousness and mindset about certain things. So we've had a whole conversation around fertility and what you should and shouldn't be doing. But really, I hope that the listeners walk away from this understanding that there's actually so much that they can do, right? To help themselves. Listening to this podcast. Yeah. Preventative yeah, measures. Totally. It's the whole part of these, totally. These because you don't want to get to that point when you're, you're sort of, you know, at, at your absolute wits' end with know, your symptoms, yeah. right? Ideally, we want to be preventing that. So it's about taking all these measures, putting these measures in place, a lot of which you can control, but quite often you may need help with that. And that's what people like me are there for. You know, I love all of that stuff. And it's about, doing something to reverse the trajectory of mm. certain things that you know ultimately will improve your health and may mean that you can avoid developing a disease altogether just because you've done something you've taken about action. it. Exactly.
0: Honestly, and I think the biggest thing for me is when I created the Be Well Collective and I also started this podcast Live Well We Be Well, the main emphasis behind this is preventative. Yeah. It's about allowing people to actually know that they can take action to their health before it's too late. Yeah, Like therapy, people go to therapy when they feel that they're really struggling. But yeah. so many times you don't need to get to that phase. There's so many things, just by going to therapy before you have a problem arise is a massive yeah. principle health measure and the same with, with our health physically. So um yes, I am 100%. completely <laughs> aligned with you on that. Before we go, we have asked you all the questions but mm-hmm. I know so many people as I mm. would want to know where they can find out more about you. So would you be able to share where you are in your clinic? Would you be able to share our sure. website or your handles, Instagram, Twitter?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I share a lot on my Instagram account mainly. So that's at Dr. Larissa Corder and hopefully we can do a little tag to that. So I put All of this will be in the show notes by the way. Yeah, I put a whole load of chaos on there to be fair. My <laughs> my own life as well as my professional life, as well as educational segments and a lot of the stuff I do on TV and in the media goes up on there as well but in addition to you know if someone did want to see me professionally um, I know we're going to organize that aren't we We and um, yeah I can't wait I'll report that exactly I was about (laughs) to say I think that'll be so incredible for your listeners to sort of see how you feel after having something like that but yeah I'm so I'm working in a couple of places I work at the Hale Clinic in London which is Europe's largest functional medicine center and people can see me there or um, I also work at Concept Fertility, which is an IVF centre. But stay tuned to my Instagram because I'll be announcing some new places as well Ooh. soon that are not necessarily London based. Let's put it that way. So please, please think about coming if you aren't you know wanting to come and see me for expert advice coming to see me sooner rather than later because there of course I work with people who actively want to conceive at that time I also work a lot with women who have um, women's health issues mm. you know they don't necessarily want to conceive right now but they want to do something about it to sort of prevent themselves from getting into a situation where it may become a problem and like you I'm all about prevention I think we need to move away from the curative model of care and instead you know focus efforts on empowering people to be able to prevent certain conditions that they don't need to suffer with and on that note it's a mic drop
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Thank you for having me it's been such a pleasure it's been mind blowing the <laughs> just to go out
1: thank me you. too thank you
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please can I ask one huge favour? If you could subscribe, share and rate this podcast, it would mean an immense amount to me and all the fantastic guests who come on to share their expertise and knowledge with us. It will keep this podcast growing and it will allow us to continue making episodes. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well.